Cityscape is supported by the Museums of Lower Manhattan, located south of Houston Street. Hope you're hungry this morning because today's Cityscape is all about food. Good morning. I'm George Bodarki. Here's what's on the menu. For appetizers, New York City's so-called food maven will provide us with the history behind the city's culinary scene. Jim Leff, the co-founder of the food website Chowhound, will join us for our first course. Our second course is bound to be something interesting. It'll be served up by the Gastronauts, an adventurous group of New York City eaters. And we'll finish up our radio meal with a little trans fat. The Bloomberg administration wants to ban the use of artificial trans fats in restaurants. But if it does, will food taste any different? Stay tuned for our in-studio taste test. It's a mouth-watering cityscape from WFUV and WFUV.org. Our first guest has earned the reputation as New York City's food maven. Arthur Schwartz was one of the first male newspaper food editors in the nation. For 13 years, he was the host of Food Talk on WOR here in the city. He's also the author of Arthur Schwartz's New York City Food. Arthur joins us by phone this morning. Arthur, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you, George. How would you describe New York's culinary scene? Eclectic and expensive. You know, we are the greatest eating town on earth. If you consider that eating many different cuisines in one place is a great thing, which I think it is. Your book, New York City Food, walks us through the history of food in the Big Apple. Talk to us, Arthur, about the early influences on the city's cuisine. You know, the earliest influence is, of course, the Dutch, who founded New York as New Amsterdam, and, of course, loved to eat. I'm a very big man, and I always joke and say, my body type was the standard of beauty in Dutch New York. And so we started out not only as a Dutch business, but also as a place where people love to eat. And in fact, we do have some remnants or vestigial things about the, in the city that are Dutch. For instance, the crullers that they serve on every coffee cart around town, uh, that's a Dutch item. Coleslaw, and by the way, we love coleslaw in New York, is a Dutch dish. Uh, I can name a lot of things. The English were not much of an influence except for our love of roasts and meat. We are a meat culture in general. But they didn't do much to add to our culinary heritage. The big immigrant group that doesn't get enough credit are the Germans who arrived in New York in the 1840s because of political unrest in Europe. And they were not poor people. Uh, some of them were, but most of them were middle class, and they either had um, trade skills or they were uh, intellectuals of one sort or another. And a lot of our food is, in fact, can, you can trace back to German heritage. Also mid-19th century, we had the Irish arriving, and the Irish, although they have no cuisine of their own to speak of, quickly became not only the rulers of New York, by 1875 they ran the city, but they also ran most of the households in New York. They, uh, women went into domestic service, and they were the cooks and maids in most uh, New York households that had cooks and maids. And so they cook, I would say the Irish cook other people's food very well. But then in the late 19th century, we had the Italians and the Jews. That was a huge influence. Chinese food, the Chinese were here from the 1830s, and by the end of the 19th century, there was Chinatown as we knew it 10 years ago anyway. These days, Chinatown is like Little Italy. It's just for tourists. There aren't many wonderful places to eat there. You know, it's a great deal of ethnic diversity. Nowadays, 
I would rather be going to a Dominican restaurant in New York or some other Hispanic restaurant in New York than going to a Chinese restaurant because they're our newest immigrant groups, and, and they have wonderful restaurants. Talking about the city's restaurants, I'm sure through history, a number of them have helped to make the city's food famous worldwide. The most famous and most important restaurant in New York history is Delmonico's. And there are many things called Delmonico these days. There's even, by the way, an original Delmonico's restaurant. It's not the owners, and it has nothing to do with Delmonico's, but the facility, the building, is still there. It's down on Beaver Street, and it's now owned by the Cipriani family. It has nothing to do with Delmonico's. But Delmonico's was the first real restaurant in New York, opened in 1827 really as a wine bar, but by 1830 was a full-fledged restaurant and didn't close until Prohibition, 1923, well into Prohibition, because they felt they couldn't continue anymore without wine service and the ability to use spirits in their cooking. But it was very, very innovative, and it did make New York famous internationally as a restaurant town. People like Charles Dickens came to visit New York, went to Delmonico's, and went home and saying this was better than any restaurant in Paris. And even French people came to New York and said this was on par with any French restaurant in France. So Delmonico's was the first. In more recent history, I would say the Four Seasons, which still exists on Park Avenue and 52nd Street, the Four Seasons reintroduced fine world-class dining to New York after that dry period, um, pun intended, of Prohibition. You have to understand, in 1919, when Prohibition came around, that was the end of fine dining in New York. It was a great period for drinking, ironically. <laughs> the number of bars doubled during Prohibition, but the number of fine dining restaurants diminished seriously. But in 1959, a company called Restaurant Associates, which, by the way, is still extant and has many restaurants in New York, as well as being one of the largest corporate feeders in, in the world, Restaurant Associates opened up the Four Seasons in the brand-new Seagram building, and it's still there. It's run by a third generation of owners. It reintroduced fine dining and also introduced the concept of using local seasonal ingredients. In your opinion, what are some of the greatest dishes invented in New York City? Ah, uh, Here's one that doesn't often get acknowledged as a New York dish, but Eggs Benedict was invented at Delmonico's. By the way, Delmonico's invented a lot of things. Vichyssoise, even though it has a French name, was invented, and it's made in Europe and in France, they think it's French. It was invented or created, I should say, by a French chef named Louis Diot at the New York Ritz-Carlton Hotel. Is Steak Diane a New York dish? Steak Diane, thank you. Another dish that's very hard to find these days, but I love it myself, it's steak with a um, sauce that has uh, a mustard and cream and, and cognac, and it's flambéed. One of those, actually, that's a society restaurant dish. And the only place I know that it's still made is the 21 Club, which, by the way, is a former speakeasy from Prohibition. And the whole idea of 21 was, besides to make a lot of money selling illegal booze, was to actually maintain the fine dining idea 
through prohibition. And the owners, the original owners of 21, uh, were very food conscious, and they only bought the best products. And I think 21 is one of the most fun restaurants, if not maybe the best, but certainly one of the most fun places to go in New York. It's been around since 1921 or two. Arthur Schwartz, people should check out your book, New York City Food. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you, George. Arthur Schwartz is New York City's so-called food maven. He's online at arthurschwartz.com. If you're in search of amazing food and drink in New York City, another website worth checking out is chowhound.com. I'm joined now in the studio by Chowhound co-founder Jim Leff. Jim, thanks for coming in. My pleasure. First of all, what is a chowhound? A chowhound is sort of a, a kind of foodie. Um, most foodies are people who gladly um, down the hype and they eat where they're told and they follow the conventional wisdom and they care deeply about the star chefs and they gobble up Food Network and all the glossy food magazines. I'm not saying that chowhounds don't do that, but more they're more interested in resourcefully finding their own finds, making their own opinions. They don't eat where they're told. They blaze trails into neighborhoods that most people never go. They love getting lost so that they can find uh, serendipitous deliciousness. And it's all about strategizing. You don't follow someone else's instructions on where to eat. You figure it out yourself. Many of us are on the go here in New York City. We need to grab a bite on the run from the office to Mm -hmm. a meeting. How do you go about choosing a place that's good when you are running around like that? Well, the first thing is you don't need to settle just because you're in a hurry. Being in a hurry is just another cuisine. You know, if I'm eating Chinese or steakhouse or whatever, I don't settle. I try to find the very best. And if I'm looking for a muffin on the run, I I, I equally don't settle. I mean, the old model of the gourmet from the 1960s is someone who would have fine dining twice a week and then munch some awful sandwich at work. And I don't think that's really being a food lover. If you truly love eating the edible art crafted by someone, then you have to maximize your deliciousness at every possible consumption point. And so when you're on the go, the main thing to do is respect what you're doing as much as you do when you're dining out for a special occasion. Make the same effort, use the same strategy, but just sort of compress it and work it more towards donuts than, say, foie gras. How do you choose a good place to eat? People always want me to give them a list of things to look for, like green awnings or pizzerias with Tony's in the name. But, you know, if green awnings and Tony's Pizza did it, then everybody would have a green awning and everybody call themselves Tony's Pizzeria. And, it would, you know, it's like an efficient market. There's no, there's no sort of left brain points for figuring out where is good. Instead, you have to think back a few notches into the matrix. Basically, there's two kinds of people who open restaurants. There's people who last week had a pool cleaning service and decided that this week they could make more money making pizza. And then there's people who honestly want to nourish you and care and are proud of what they're doing. Those two kinds of people are so utterly, utterly opposed and different that the tiny little decisions made in all sorts of things from the name of the place to the location to the font of the lettering in the window to the takeout menu to the way it looks to the way it smells to the way they look at you it's all going to be manifested in those things and you have to learn to spot the signs you just have to go back a few notches into this human psyche and decide are you a or are you b avoid a make your life work sniffing out b for you if the food was great and the service was terrible would you go back Not only would I go back, but if the food was terrible and the service was terrible and one dish was unbelievable, that's a great restaurant. You know, the average person knows what they want to eat and they go to a restaurant and they order what they feel like. I never, 
ever order what I feel like. I order what the restaurant does best. And if what the restaurant does best is not what I feel like, I don't go to the restaurant. You know, I, I choose restaurants the way people choose dishes. And so, yeah, I'm very specific. Now, I mean, that doesn't mean that, you know, I want to eat out of a trowel while people are whipping me in uniforms and calling me names, you know? I mean, I sure, I, I love great ambiance. I love comfy chairs. I, I love nice waiters, whether they're fancy, uptight, nice waiters or relaxed, nice waiters in blue jeans. I, you know, all those things are good, but really the eyes on the deliciousness. And what I found is, again, going back to that A-B dichotomy, people who make great food and make great restaurants because they deeply care seldom have jerks waiting tables and seldom have bad ambiance. I mean, what, they might have ambiance that a snob would consider bad, but I, I believe that great food makes its own ambiance. If I'm going to, say, a Dominican restaurant for the very first time, I've right. never had this kind of food before, how do I know what to order? Excellent question. Yeah, you need to develop a series of litmus test dishes. Well, it depends. Are you, are you eating for enjoyment or are you eating for research? I mean, chowconnaissance is the first level of chow hounding. That's when you go to a restaurant and you're not expecting to have a great experience, but you're just trying to suss out what it does. And for that, you need litmus tests. In a Dominican restaurant, well, if you're in a real hurry, as you said, I would just go get a quick empanada to go. A Dominican fried empanada it has nothing to do with the Argentinian ones. They're sort of like, they're almost more like Chinese restaurant empanadas. They're very fried and very bubbly and, and crackly, sort of like an egg roll. And uh, from that, you can get a really good idea. If you're going to really enjoy and you want to figure out what to order, well, the best thing you can do is what I call the perp walk. Go into the restaurant and um, need to use the bathroom. And as you walk, just subtly look at all the plates. And, you know, if you just look at enough plates and enough cuisines and enough restaurants, you'll eventually get to the point where you can detect the cynical ways that things are done. I can spot a cynical plantain from 12 miles away at this point. I would think you would want to look for where the immigrant population is based, where they live, because that's where they're eating and that's where the food is authentic and potentially very good. When people come just off the boat, um, the food has a certain immediacy and vibrancy that I can glean off of and I can just sort of find my inner Nicaraguan, you know, and that's just great. On the other hand, there's something to be said for watered down uh, assimilated food. And that's the mantra of chowhound.com. Deliciousness is deliciousness. How far have you traveled for deliciousness? I've traveled to Europe 19 times for cookies a stupid brand of Italian supermarket cookies taken seriously by no one in Italy. I'm going to run through some ethnic foods now and ask you to help me find the good places. Okay, here we go. Irish food. My favorite used to be um, Katie Daly's in Massapequa, Long Island, um, and I bet it's still good. Really good shepherd's pie, hamburgers, onion rings, uh, some other stuff. I, like, I wish I could pronounce the hip stuff. I also like Donovan's in Bayside and Woodside, Queens for Irish. There's also a sensational Irish neighborhood up here in the Bronx. How about Polish food? The best Polish I know right now is in Staten Island. It's called, uh, it's called like the Polish restaurant or something. It's really, really good. You know, everybody's looking for the hip Polish place in, in Greenpoint where there's all these Polish people. And the problem is it's just everything there tastes kind of the same. There's always one really good place. My favorite just closed. And that's why we must be forever vigilant scanning the landscape because favorites go downhill and close. Jim Leff, thanks so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Jim Leff is the co-founder of Chowhound.com. He's also involved with Chow.com, where the motto is food, drink, fun. We recently caught up with a group of New Yorkers who love to push their gastronomical limits. 
Every month, they hop the subway in search of the most exotic food New York has to offer. They call themselves the Gastronauts, and their latest adventure took them one hour out of Manhattan to the Rudar Soccer Club, a beer hall slash restaurant that caters to the local Croatian community. Over a dozen gastronauts made their trip to Rudar, crowding into the small basement. We spoke with the group's three founders. My name is Ben Palker. I'm from New York. Uh, I'm an editor and a writer. The Gastronauts Club came about. Um, Curtis and I had this idea to start a, sort of an eating club. And the original idea was to sort of start a club where we could cook meals for friends and learn how to cook interesting things. That was Curtis's idea, but I had had this club before called the GDFC, the Gross and Disgusting Food Club. We had about two meetings, eating sort of fish heads and weird stuff like that, and it pretty much petered out. So we combined the two ideas and tried to just involve a bunch of friends to come out and eat interesting things. Not so much fear factor kind of meals, but interesting regional meals with a little bit of stuff that you wouldn't be able to have at home. I'm Courtney Kelly and I live in the East Village and these two pompous airbags, Ben and Curtis, were always talking about how they were going to start a club and we were going to eat exotic, fantastic foods and they would talk about it and talk about it and talk about it and so, as Ben and Curtis have heard a thousand times, I accuse them of really only being in the talking about the Gastronauts Club but not actually ever starting the Gastronauts and I said that you know, we needed to pick a day and we needed to pick a restaurant and we needed to actually do that. I essentially just nagged them and I forced them to pick a restaurant and pick a menu and send out invitations. And we do that now every uh, first Tuesday of the month. This is our 10th month so far that we've been successful at picking out a place that our friends wouldn't typically come to eat and eating cuisine that's a little bit exotic and better than you'd think it would be. My name's Curtis. I'm uh, one of the founding members of Gastronauts, and uh, I'm a graphic designer and illustrator here in New York. We basically uh, we drive around looking for for crazy food to eat. Ben and I decided one set, uh, Sunday afternoon to explore Flushing, Koreatown, and Chinatown. We were looking for two dishes, three dishes really. Um, we were looking for drunken shrimp which is uh, live shrimp dr uh, dropped in alcohol um, and then served live, basically. We were looking for live octopus, which is uh, it's a Korean specialty. It's it's, they cut it and serve it to you, and it's still squirming, and it sticks to your tooth and all that stuff. And we were looking for this dish we'd read about called chicken butts, really, chicken anuses. Um, so we are driving around and going from place to place, and I had to get out of the car and go in and ask them, do you have chicken butts? Finally, I found this old lady said, oh, yes, yes, I know this place. So we went, and it was like we'd stepped into a Korean village. It was like bare cement. There were tanks lining the, the right side of the wall, full of these like exotic animals that I'd never seen. Uh, octopi was the most recognizable thing. But like sea slugs and, and clams that have sh weird shapes. And um, we sort of walked in there and they looked at us like, no English, no English, no English. They said, okay, so do you serve 
live octopus and I made a kind of motion with my hands to show the octopus and they said yes, yes, yes. We arranged to um, to have, you know, I think we had about 15 to 20 people come the next Tuesday and it was, uh, it was extraordinary. We put on this incredible feast with uh, live squirming octopi, which they, the limbs of which they cut off and then fed to us. This place is Rudar Minor Soccer Club, and it's out in what is it, Long Island City. Um, I had read about this place in some obscure website. People had sort of mentioned it as being a spot for Istrian cuisine. We've done some things that were a little bit more extreme, and in some ways this is sort of traditional down-home food, but I think the experience is more unique um, than most of the restaurants you would find, definitely in Manhattan. I think what's typifies this place is this was a soccer team that wanted to eat after their soccer. They were hungry, they played hard, and then went over to their mom's house and their mom made them traditional Croatian food and then everyone else in the neighborhood came over because it was good. And now we're also coming over. It's essentially a clubhouse for the soccer team that has graciously opened its doors to the neighborhood and also to us. I think we're probably ready for the next course, yeah. So what's, what are we going to have? Polenta. Polenta with the skate. Because it's the fish and it's better you have fish at the same time. I agree. Yeah, it's good. So far so good. We've had the two octopus and sort of um, bivalve courses and now we're going on to skate. So another seafood, and then we're probably going to go to pasta and then to the meat. Nothing here is too gastronautical, but we're going to finish up with tripe and liver, Venetian style, which should be a little bit more exciting. This is Croatian dialect from part of the Croatia Istria. They call this, that's the real, real you know, the sauce, real sauce. They call Zvanci. Fuji, Sa, Zvetseto. You see this? Fuji, Sa, there's there's two dishes here. One's fuzi and one's gnocchi. The fuzi it looks like handkerchiefs almost folded over. It's handmade. It's a thin pasta dough with flour and egg and water. The gnocchi is made with potato flour, so it's like pounded dried potatoes, and it's sort of like um, little rounds a little bit. And they both have the same sauce, unfortunately, and kind of big chunks of mystery meat. This night isn't complete without doing a, a big Croatian cheers to the woman who's facilitated all of it. Tina. So I'd like to raise the glass and say, La Zdravia! This is great. It's really good. This is really good. Curtis, have you understood that? 
think is a relevant distinction is that a lot of these recipes come from cultures where they force to eat every part of the animal so that the recipe is really what can we do with the hoof because we're starving <laughs> and the juxtaposition though is that we live in Manhattan it's one of the wealthiest cities in the world and we could obviously eat whatever we want but what we've chosen to go out and find is this recipe from a culture where the last thing they have to eat is the hooves and the bone marrow and they've made something fantastic out of it you know what I see that the tripe and the liver have arrived oh, so we have to get tripe. back to the tent the sauce, I mean, it, it tastes quite good, but I don't like the, the texture of it. The liver I quite like, but I don't like the This is uh, an Istrian kind of grappa. It's called Urakia. I'm imagining, it's. I mean, obviously it's some sort of Croatian firewater, but I'm imagining it's going to have a little bit of anise flavor or something like that, but... It's kind of DJ Steve you have at the end of the meal that you sort of go home and you're thankful you don't have to drive and you just jump on the subway and fall asleep. Yeah, we, we try and integrate a fair amount of drinking into these evenings just because, you know, if it's for eating eyeballs or chicken butt or intestines, it sort of helps everything go down a little bit smoother. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Nice to see you. Thank you, Tina. Thank you. Is it time to go back to Manhattan? <laughs> Feel like it's that time. That's the Gastronauts, New York City's very own adventurous eating club. If you want more information, you can visit gastronauts.com, where you'll be able to see pictures of the group and read accounts of their many adventures. New York City wants to make eating healthier. The city is pushing a proposal to prohibit the use of artificial trans fats in restaurants. Chicken chain KFC recently stopped frying chicken and trans fats at its locations here and plans to expand the effort nationwide by April. This morning on Cityscape, we're conducting a taste test, a highly scientific taste test, to determine whether food tastes any different minus the trans fat. We ran out to a KFC and picked up a bucket of chicken, and we also have some chicken, which includes trans fat, from the local chicken joint. We've decided to bring some of WFUV's employees into the studio to help compare this chicken. So joining us for the trans fat taste test is... Corny. Corny O'Connell from City Folk Evening. Good morning. God, it's so early. <laughs> <laughs> and this is George Evans, uh, City Folk fill-in host and also director of technical operations. Elisa Ali, producer for City Folk Morning. <laughs> and Sarah Wardrop, music interview producer. I guess it is a little early for chicken, but... Nonetheless, let's taste some chicken, huh? Pass it around. Right. Dishing this out here? Yeah, oh pass it around. Open so up that bucket. So we've got the KFC, and we also have the, the local guy right. with the trans fat. The trans fat chicken, yeah. I'm having some of the trans fat. Right. That's the trans fat? That you're Let's eating? go trans right now. All right. I'm going to try some of the KFC first. Lip smacking good. Trans fat's mm. pretty good. <laughs> the KFC is very greasy. Yes, it is. I'm, I'm going to try now. Just wait till you get to the other one. I'm going to try the trans fat chicken now and see if I could taste the difference. <laughs> I, can I have to say, Oof. I think I like the trans fat. 
Did you hear me biting into that huge glob of fat? You know, I'm going to agree with you, George. It's I like the, I like the local guy chicken shop, even though it's got the trans fat in it. I'm not sure if I can taste the difference, though, because it, they're both very greasy. Yeah. So I, I can't really tell whether one is trans fat and one's not trans fat. George, what do you think? I was, I'd have to agree with what he said, but I, I think I like the KFC. <laughs> now, do you remember what KFC tastes like without the trans fat? With just, the trans a, fat? just a few weeks ago, I was uh, with uh, some family, and we actually had some you know, KFC up in Westchester, and they still have the trans fat. And honestly, right now, I feel like that one was much greasier than what I'm eating right here. Because hmm. uh, I, 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 it had been a while since I had had KFC, and I remember wiping my hands because I was helping out with babies constantly and the napkins were loaded with grease and here i mean let me just see what the it seems to be a little less i don't know if that's true but how about you elisa um uh, i i hate to admit it but i do like kentucky fried chicken <laughs> and um to me it tastes the same and yeah. maybe it is less greasy but it sure is still greasy right now mm-hmm. extra grease extra good i like it better i don't know they're both very greasy i can't tell the difference between trans fat and non-trans fat chicken what about you sarah well, in this case, I would say I, I think I got to go with the KFC. Just uh, it's got the little spice, and I haven't had KFC in a while, so I can't really compare the grease factor. But um, the local chicken I have has a little bit of a yellow color to it. And I think that's the adobo. Mm-hmm. Could be the adobo, as Elisa said. I'm not really sure, but um, it just makes it that much less appealing to me. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think, though, Sarah, you can tell a difference between food with trans fat and food without trans fat based on these two chickens? The the local certainly seems a lot greasier. So what do you think? You I guys think, think you have a consent? It's me. hard. Yeah, me too. It's no, hard. I can't tell. I really can't. No. I don't think I can tell. Nope. Can we have some pure trans fat just so we can <laughs> bottle <unpack>. trans fat? <laughs> I'm having a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> Get an I IV, please. <laughs> I don't know. I think. What do you think? Next week, trans fat donuts versus non trans fat oh. donuts. I'm Absolutely. down for that. Let's go there. All right. Well, guys, thanks so much for doing our trans fat taste test and. We'll call a physician for you, Corny. Anyone have a wet nap? (laughs) (laughs) There you have it, the final word on trans fat. Well, that's not entirely true. The real final word will come in December when the New York City Board of Health votes on the future of trans fat in local restaurants. So if you're a fan of donuts, fried chicken, and other such food, better hurry. Either way, trans fat or not, we hope you have a good meal or two this weekend. Thanks for joining us on Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks, as always, to producer Jody Avergan. Remember to look us up at WFUV.org, where you can listen to old shows, download the podcast, and post a message to our bulletin board. Have a great weekend. Cityscape is supported by the Museums of Lower Manhattan, located south of Houston Street. The Museum of American Financial History is in the Old Standard Oil Building, where John D. Rockefeller forged his reputation as a captain of industry, and it's one of the 15 unique museums of Lower Manhattan. Info at museumsoflowermanhattan.org.